You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. We've been sharing a few reflections from Bishop Sheen's Catholic Hour recordings in the 1940s, and of course, uh, Fulton Sheen was the trusted voice, especially during the war years. I think uh, everyone was looking for a little bit of sanity, a little bit of uh, counsel, I guess, uh, and not knowing how things would turn out. But uh, Fulton Sheen opened his Bible and shared, uh, again, beautiful reflections uh, with the faithful for years uh, during the war. And so it was a very great privilege to share these with you because I think they're very timely. Um, We look at the news today. We see the war in Ukraine and Russia. Of course, the unrest in the Middle East and uh, over in Asia, of course, Uh, Korea and China and Taiwan, and the list goes on and on of where there are uh, warring factions. And so uh, I think Fulton Sheen kind of um, just makes sense of it. And I think this is what's really refreshing about these talks. Even though they were given in the 40s, it's like he's speaking to us today. And so I'm going to share with you from the archives a reflection from 1942, and it's entitled Spectators and Actors in the Drama of the Cross. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy this. And then, of course, I'll share uh, a, a retreat reflection that he gave towards the end of his life. And it's simply entitled Our Cross. And so uh, today's uh, program will Uh, again, focus in on the cross. And so, again, that 1942 reflection, spectators and actors in the drama of the cross, and then a reflection from the 1970s uh, entitled Our Cross. So may I invite you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a presentation entitled Spectators and Actors in the drama of the cross. Please enjoy. Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen of the Catholic University of America will now deliver the 11th in his series of 17 addresses on the general subject, peace. His discourse today is entitled Spectators and Actors in the Drama of the Cross. I present Monsignor Sheen. Friends, Why does God permit this war? 
This question is generally asked by the spectators, not by the actors in the drama of suffering. It is the sufferers who manifest the greatest faith. It is the spectators who are the skeptics. No one knows this better than a priest. As we go about administering the consolation of the sacraments, which our divine Lord provided for the suffering and the dying, we are but rarely asked by the faithful, why does God do this to me? On the contrary, we find most often a positively joyful submission to the divine will, the sufferers saying, whatever the good Lord sends me, I accept. Or, well, this suffering gives me an opportunity to do penance for my sins. Or, this will shorten my purgatory. Or, what I suffer is nothing compared to what Jesus suffered on the cross for me. But as we priests leave the beds of the faithful who bear the marks of the cross on their bodies and go out among those whose lives are comfortable and who never pray and who are cross because the morning paper has not arrived for breakfast and who think that an A.B. degree gives them a greater mind than the Almighty, among these we are asked, why does God allow this war and suffering and evil? It is generally those who have never had a struggle in life, who never disciplined themselves, who bombard heaven with petulant accusations and shout to God their resentful, why, why, why? On the stage of Calvary, a great actor enacted a role in the world's greatest tragedy. And after bearing the brunt of the world's evil, pronounced with strong voice and clear mind the great last line, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But beneath that stage, the spectators queried, Why does God not deliver him? Why is it that the actors in the drama of the tragedy are less puzzled by its cross than the spectators? One reason is because suffering initiates us into the great mysteries of life. The spectators see only half the game. They need announcers to explain the plays. The players know the secrets, where they are going and why. Consider St. Peter, for example. He slept in the garden. This may have been excusable, for up to that point he was only a spectator. He was not yet introduced to the full mystery of the cross. But he understood the mystery when he himself became an actor in the drama. There is an old legend to the effect that Peter followed the advice of some friends and fled from the persecutions in Rome. A short distance outside of the city on the Appian Way, he meets the risen and glorified Savior, still bearing the scars of his passion. 
And Peter asks, Quo vadis, Domine? Where art thou going, O Lord? And the Savior answered, I am going back again to Rome to be re-crucified. That was enough for Peter. He saw that his own refusal to love the Savior as the Savior loved him was nailing the Lord to the cross. And back again to Rome he went. And when his hour came to witness to his faith, he deemed it unworthy to die as the Savior died and asked his, his executioners to crucify him upside down. Suffering revealed to Peter the deep mysteries of life as it does to millions of others. Like fire, it burns away the dross that the fine gold might be ours. The log in the forest is only a spectator of the sun's fire. But brought from the forest into the hearth, it becomes now an actor and returns fire with fire and sings as it is consumed. It is interesting to note that the only recorded time our divine Lord ever sang was the night he went out to his death. So with us, our nature is larger than we know, our destiny higher than we know. That is why our destinies are best achieved when our lower ends are set at naught. The silver in the bowels of the earth has a higher destiny than it knows. But only the miner's drill, which blasts it from its dark dwelling, can assign that silver to its higher purpose with men. Plants, too, have a higher destiny than they know. They must, therefore, be dug up from their roots and ground beneath the jaws of death before they can live in the animal. Animals have a higher destiny than they know, and only a sacrificial knife can usher them into that higher goal of ministering to the life of man. And man, too, has a higher destiny than he knows. But, unlike all things below him, he attains it not by self-extinction, but by a surrender of the baser part of him, that he may perfect that higher faculty which really makes him a man, a child of God and an heir of the kingdom of heaven. As our divine Lord said, if you wish to save your life, you must lose it. And from another point of view, suffering also removes a false sense of values. It makes this problem rather acute. Are we going forward according to the will of God and every law written in our nature? Or are we going to stand alone, saving our miserable, selfish lives, and in the end, lose them? In great moments of tragedy, sorrow, and pain, we are very often given sudden intuitive visions of the utter hollowness and emptiness of life apart from God. Suffering always begets in us 
a longing for security. That is why this war, which manifests the utter stupidity of the modern philosophies of life, and which will empty the barns of those who thought only of filling them, will force souls to seek another security, another hope. Perhaps men will act now as they did when they were children. Many a child, when reprimanded or punished or denied a wish, will turn away from his present discontent back to something which gave him pleasure, even though it was only a broken toy. And so, too, now that the baubles of a godless world have broken, grown children will seek happiness by turning back to something which gave them happiness in their youth in a moment of sorrow, maybe a prayer they learned at their mother's knee. Coventry Patmore tells us in a poem how a little boy in sorrow found consolation in clasping bluebells and pennies. My little son, who looked from thoughtful eyes and moved and spoke in quite grown-up wise, having my law the seventh time disobeyed, I struck him and dismissed with harsh words and unkissed his mother who was patient being dead. Then, fearing lest his grief should hinder sleep, I visited his bed, but found him slumbering deep with darkened eyelids and their lashes yet from his late sobbing wet. And I, with moan, kissing away his tears, left others of my own. For on a table drawn beside his head, he had put within his reach a box of counters and a red-veined stone, a piece of glass abraded with a beach and six or seven shells, and two French coins reigns there with careful art to comfort his sad heart. And perhaps in this present sorrow of the war, we as a nation will go back to the God we have forgotten and disobeyed, and he in his goodness will console us as a father. The fundamental difference between the spectator and the actor is that for the spectator, man is ultimate, but for the actor, God is ultimate. This accounts for the totally different approaches to the problem of pain and war and suffering. The humanitarian spectator wants to alleviate human suffering. He really wants to. He will contribute to hospitals. He will endow universities. Of course, he will never inquire whether or not they are teaching truth. He believes that a day will come when science will do away with men's ills. 
and that when education is truly universal, there will be no more wars. He feels that his responsibility ends by doing something, whether it be giving an ambulance to secure a job or to find a place for an indigent revolutionary. If he fails to alleviate suffering, he never worries. For he feels that he's done all that he could. He generally says that. His responsibilities end with his gift. Where he cannot heal, he ignores. Whom he cannot relieve, he passes by. But the actor in the drama of Calvary, on the contrary, begins precisely where that humanitarian leaves off. He does all the things the humanitarian does, but is very careful when he gives money that it will not be used to destroy life in a hospital, even scientifically, nor ever used to spread error or immorality in schools however disguised under the cloak of academic freedom. But the actor goes beyond these things. He seeks to take the sorrow of his neighbor as his own and to fulfill the injunction of Paul, bear one another's burdens. The spectator, seeing Christ carrying his cross to Calvary, would organize a civil liberties league, send a protest to Pilate, signed by 400 professional signers who will sign anything that throws a burden on someone else and then publicize it in the newspapers. But the actor, meeting Christ on the road, would help him carry his cross as Simon did. The spectator might ask our Lord to lay down his cross. The actor will take it up. The difference between the two is the difference between alleviating and redeeming, between doing all you can and sharing all you are for another. The spectator regards trials and sufferings as a problem. The actor regards them as a challenge. Our government is complaining that the people of the United States are too complacent about this war. What is the root of this complacency? It is assuming that we are spectators of the war and not actors in its drama. If there be national complacency, it is due to a backwash of spiritual complacency. Peter, James, and John slept in the Garden of Gethsemane because they were unmindful of the awfulness of the Savior's hour. Worry keeps us awake. These men slept. Therefore, they did not worry. They were blind to the reality of evil that was at their gates. They were complacent. And if we be indifferent to danger, may it not be due to the fact that our secular schools for over two generations have been teaching there's no distinction between good and evil. It all depends upon your point of view. 
Well, if there be no evil, how shall we be aroused to its existence in enemies? If there be no goodness, how shall we become the defenders of goodness? If there be no sin or guilt, when shall come our moral indignation, which alone can win a war? Now that war is upon us, we must begin to realize that we are not spectators of it, but we are actors. And as we plunge into the sacrifice and the blood and the toil and the sweat of it all, we must be stirred to a sense of our corporate responsibility to our fellow men and to the world. And that is why we have been pleading and every broadcast with Jews and with Protestants to set aside an hour a day for meditation and prayer. And that too is why we beg our fellow Catholics who are physically able to attend Mass daily, receive Holy Communion, and prolong their meditation half an hour thereafter along the lines suggested in the Holy Hour booklet which we will send free to any Jew, Protestant, or Catholic who asks for it. This Holy Hour devotion has an object. It is to awaken our national conscience, to make us realize that the whole world is in a mess. And for one reason, because of sin, the sin of all of us in varying degrees. The sin of forgetting God and his divine son. And since sin is a common debt, let none of us ask to be exempt from that burden. Each holy hour must be made not for our particular intention, but to pay off some debt of the world's sin. We thus become actors in the drama of restoring the world to sanity, for presently, the world has gone mad. The whole world is in the state of mortal sin. It needs redemption. We have no economic or political plans. We are not even interested in trying to create a good society. We are trying to create the creators of a good society. America is not yet conscious of sacrifice and of the cross. We submit to it and only in the proportion that we have to. But voluntarily, we must begin to do more. We are flying from sacrifice as Peter did. And our Lord, he is meeting America on the roadway of life. And he is asking the same question that Peter asked. Quo vadis, America? Where are you going, America? That's it. Where are we going? Where are we going? Are we going to the cross as spectators or as actors? 
What is your answer? As the majority in America answers, so shall be the future of America. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear friends. I hope you enjoyed that first reflection. And I think uh, it is true what I said earlier, that even though this talk was given in 1942, uh, it could be given today in the year 2022. Uh, My dear friends, I want to thank everyone who has uh, been very supportive of the books that I've written over the years, uh, a number of anthologies uh, published by Sophia Institute Press, and uh, I've written on the power of the cross, the power of the sacraments, the power of prayer, uh, the power of God's love, and now uh, understanding war and peace. And so uh, this latest book, War and Peace, an anthology, is available through Sophia Institute Press, and you can find them at sophiainstitute.com on the web, and uh, of course, uh, wherever fine books are sold. So a great uh, series of reflections. And in fact, many of these audio recordings that you'll be listening to over the next few weeks are contained in the book, War and Peace. And so again, thanks to everyone who has been very supportive. I'm going to share with you now, of course, the second reflection. Uh, It's entitled, Our Cross, and it comes from a retreat that Fulton Sheen gave uh, towards the end of his life. And so I invite you once again to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a presentation titled, Our Cross. Please enjoy. Friends in Christ. Well, we have another challenging morning where we have two groups, those who have finished their school and those who have not. If I were to address either group alone, I would not have very much difficulty. But this is a difficult sandwich to make. I talk to many young people, particularly in colleges and universities throughout the country. I was talking at one university in California, and a student uh, during question period asked me, how was Joni in the belly of the whale for three days? I said, my good man, I haven't the faintest idea. But when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. He said, suppose Jonah isn't there. Well, I said, then you ask him. (laughs) I suppose the best way to arouse, arouse your curiosity is to tell you what I'm going to talk about and give you a word that you will not understand. And that will introduce a little mystery into all of this. I'm going to talk about scallops. But it's not spelled the way you know. It is spelled S-K-O-L-O-P, scallop. 
I will tell you where I got the word a little later on. And it means any kind of handicap, frustration, disappointment, agony, anxiety that we have to bear during life. So let me tell the young people a story about, uh, well, about a scallop and a disappointment that I had and how it is to be handled and how it was handled. Generally, a priest is ordained at the age of 24, and by that time he's old enough to begin to do pastoral work. I was not very smart. I'll never forget those four years in the third grade. <laughs> so after I was ordained, I was in school for seven years. So you see, I had to make up for a great deal. And I had spent two years in the Catholic University in Washington, then about five years in the universities of Europe. And when I finished my studies, there were two offers that came to me. One was to go to Columbia University to teach a course in philosophy, scholastic philosophy. Nicholas Murray Butler was then president, and he had asked Cardinal Mercier if he would send someone to begin a school of scholastic philosophy. The other invitation was to go to Oxford University in England and to open up a Catholic course with Father Rother Monsignor Roland Knox, a famous English priest. Just at the time that those two invitations came, I felt I should submit them both to my bishop. So I sent them to him and said, which shall I accept? And he said, come home. He put me in a parish that was very poor. The streets were not paved. Half of the parish did not speak English. And it was looked down upon by the most of the people as one of the poor and insignificant parishes of the city. Now, what do you do in a situation like that, particularly when the newspapers and, of course, wagging tongues say, well, how stupid the bishop is. Here he sends a man abroad, gives him seven years of graduate education, and then puts him down there in a parish where they barely understand English. That's what they were saying. Now, what did I say? I said to myself, this is the way the Lord wants it. He's speaking through my bishop, and so this is going to be my life's work, and this is the way I'm going to serve the good Lord, and I'm going to be happy about it. So I started working in the parish, and I increased daily communions from four to a hundred in about six months. And then made, in the course of about a year, a number of converts. And when I was there, about ten months, the bishop phoned me. He said, 
You were to go to Washington to be a professor at the Catholic University. I promised you to the university three years ago. I said, why didn't you let me go when I came home? He said, because I just wanted to see whether or not you would be obedient. Now, you've been a good boy. Run along. So I've been running along ever since. So I might not have been here before you this day. I might have rebelled. I might have affirmed my ego. I might have said, as the young people are saying today, and let me tell you, young people, it's the craziest thing in the world that you can say, you've got to do your thing. Suppose I said, I got to do my thing. How are we going to have a football team if everyone does his thing? We have to do someone else's thing. Or we say, isn't there a song, I got to be free, I got to be me? Listen, we're never happy when we're just ourselves. When a man is in love, he wants to be someone else's. I don't want to be my own. I want to be Christ. So if you ever want to be unhappy in life, just start seeking your own will. Look over the young people in your classes. Who is the most popular? The one who was thinking of others and is kind to others or the one who was an egotist and always thinking about himself? There was an English dramatist, or rather a French dramatist by the name of Sartre, who wrote a work called We Clow, in which he pictured four men in hell. And each man was anxious only to tell about his own aches and pains. The others were not listening. That was not their thing. They were just waiting for their own turn to do their thing. And when the curtain goes down, what was the last line of the play? My neighbor is hell. Why? Because my neighbor stands up over against me. I can't do my thing. He stands there. He opposes me. He's a non-me. This was the atheist Arthur who wrote that line. My neighbor is hell. And so we get to believe that anyone who stands against me, the church, law, government, these are my hells. No, the hell is on the inside. It's that terrible ego. And so I could have ruined my life by doing my thing instead of waiting for the will of God. The problem then is how to deal with some of our handicaps and frustrations. As I go along here, I'm changing entirely the nature of the talk that I intended to give because I'm very conscious every second of having two distinct groups. The younger people do not have as many frustrations as the, as the older people. But you have, you young people have your own frustrations too. First of all, you may be ugly. 
and you may be a cripple. You may have bad eyes. You may have bad health. You may have bad breath. Remember, that used to be the most terrible thing in American society. And then the older people have more serious frustrations. Lameness, cancer, an impossible husband, an impossible wife, children that are difficult and doing their own thing. And you just think of your own. You have some kind of difficulty. You have some kind of scallop. Scallop. Now, what is a scallop? And where do I get that word? I get it from a letter that St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And I will read you the letter. And, of course, it's going to be in English. But remember that St. Paul originally wrote in Greek. This is from 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, verse 7. St. Paul is telling about visions that he had, in which the Lord gave him a vision of the third heavens. And he was permitted to know secrets, he said, that no human lips could ever repeat. Now he goes on. And to keep me from being unduly elated about the magnificence of these revelations, I was given a sharp physical pain. He was given a scallop. That's the Greek word, S-K-O-L-O-P, scallop. I was given, some translated it as a physical handicap. Uh, the uh, Latin Bible that we used to use in church, translated it by stimulus carnis, a heightened concupiscence. The King James Version, a thorn in the flesh. That comes fairly close to it, a thorn in the flesh, the word scallop. Because the word scallop is not a thorn, though. It's a stake. A big stake, the kind that you would drive into the ground to hold a fence together. So, he said, in order that I would not be unduly elated, I was given a scallop as Satan's messenger to bruise me, and this saved me from being unduly elated. And three times I begged the Lord to take it away. And his answer was, my grace is all you need. Power comes to its full strength in weakness. I shall therefore prefer to find my joy and pride in the very things that are my weakness, and then the power of Christ will come to rest in me. Now, what was this scallop of Paul? We do not know for certain. Scripture scholars have made many guesses. One guess is that he had malaria. Another guess, epilepsy. I subscribe to the notion that he had a, an affliction of the eyes that made him very unattractive. These great heroic statues you see of St. Paul certainly do not look like Paul because Paul said that in appearance he was repulsive. 
But we do not make saints look repulsive. We make them all beautiful. But some are very ugly. St. Vincent de Paul was a very ugly man. Cardinal Newman, who was very saintly, was very ugly. But he was, or not ugly, he was homely on the inside. Vincent de Paul was ugly. And so St. Paul's health or appearance was ruined probably by the disease of the eyes because at the end of some of his letters he says, see with what big letters I write? And on another occasion, he said, you Galatians would have given your eyes to me. One day when he was on trial, he slapped the Jewish high priest. And the soldier said, how did you dare slap the Jewish high priest? He said, I didn't know he was the high priest. Which is probably true. So it doesn't make very much difference what it was. But every one of us have got some, has some trial in life. Now, you, you young people, there will be jealousies, for example, and little hatreds, and other little handicaps which you know only by yourselves. Now, the problem is how to deal with these. It is either going to be by acceptance or by a rebellion. And if we begin to see that we are under the government of God and that he has permitted these things, he will not always take our handicaps away. John the Baptist was in prison. And here our blessed Lord was working miracles, raising the dead to life. And John the Baptist began to have doubts. And he sent messengers to our Lord. He says, are you really the Messiah? In other words, why don't you get me out of prison? Did the Heavenly Father take our Lord down from the cross? Maybe crosses and handicaps and trials, even the daily trials, fit into our sanctification. And we can become the better on account of them. I think one of the most, the hardest texts in sacred scripture to hear is the, the words of our Lord. You have already had your reward. You got everything you wanted. You've already had your heaven. That'll be tough to hear on the last day. You've already had your reward. So it really does not make very much difference what happens to us. What makes the difference is how we react to what happens. That's the point. Our blessed Lord told the story of two women at a mill. There were two rocks, one on top of the other, great big stones. And a long wooden pole stretched out from these round stones. Here were two women at the end of these poles, turning the mill. They were under the same sun. They were in the same economic circumstances. They received the same salary. They did the same work. Our Lord said, one was taken, the other was lost. One saved, the other lost. It makes no difference what happens to us. It all depends upon how we react to what happens. Here are two thieves on either side of our Lord. 
one of the mass to be taken down. And to him that was the test of the power of Christ. If you're really the Son of God, save thyself, save us. Take me down from this cross of pain. I want to be free, I've got to be me. Why? To go on with the dirty business of stealing. And the other thief, he wanted to be taken up. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And so the difference between souls and the difference in characters is the reaction to the trials and the handicaps of life. Believe me, God does not speak to us in words. He speaks to us in events. In events. Sometimes we'll put obstacles in our way, indicating, indicating this is not the road that you are to follow. And we must begin to read God's events, God's mind, in the things that happen to us. And this is one of the reasons why we have to be very careful in life in our attitude toward other people. Here, for example, is a Jewish neurologist and psychologist, Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl has developed a school of psychiatry called logotherapy. It means that life has meaning. He went through the Nazi concentration camp. He went through the communist concentration camp. And though he was a Jew, he believed in God, the basis of his whole psychiatry was, no matter what happens to you, even the worst kind of suffering, there's meaning in it, and it can develop your character. He began to see that at the time the Nazis came into Germany. He, re he received an invitation to open up a school of psychiatry in one of our American universities. But he was afraid to leave his father. His mother was dead. And he knew that if he left his father, that he might be killed by the Nazis. And he himself might be killed. But on the other hand, he wanted to develop his logotherapy in the United States. So he allows God to speak to him in events. He went to the Church of St. Stephen in Vienna. And he spent an hour in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament and asked our Lord to reveal to him his will. Should he stay in Germany, subject his life to the Nazis, or should he go to America and escape but leave his father? He came home from church and that evening at dinner. He said to his father, what is that over there on the mantelpiece? His father said, you remember Hitler burned our synagogue? Well, this afternoon I went rummaging around the synagogue with my cane. And I came upon this block of marble. And Dr. Frankel said, there's Hebrew script on it. Yes, he said. Do you know what it says? 
It was the beginning of the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. Dr. Frankel stayed in Vienna, and because he was an expert neurologist, the Nazis needed him, and he was able to close his own father's eyes in natural death. And he now is alive, making great contributions to the science of psychiatry. God spoke to him in events. So there's nothing that ever happens to us that cannot be divinized and sacramentalized, particularly those things that seem to go in opposition to our character. So to you young people, do not think that the ego, the self, and the love of pleasure is alone the way to happiness. It is rather establishing identity with the will of God. And it will be revealed to you. If you pray, pray to the good Lord. When I was a, a boy the age of some of you here, I used to serve Mass at the cathedral in the town where I lived, in the city. And one morning I was serving a bishop, and I dropped a cruet on the marble floor. Let me tell you that there has never been an atomic explosion in the history of this universe that can equal in intensity of sound and decibels the smashing of a cruet in the hearing of a bishop. I was frightened to death. What would he say to me? And he called me over. He said, young man, where are you going to school when you get big? Well, to me, big was high school. I was about seven or eight. And the high school was named after him. It was Spalding Institute. I said, I'm going to Spalding Institute. Now, you must admit that was rather a diplomatic answer for a seven-year-old kid. And he said, I mean, when you get big, where are you going? And I said, well, I don't know, Your Excellency. He said, did you ever hear of Louvain University? And I said, no. Did your mother? And I said, I don't know whether she did or not. Well, you go home and tell your mother that I said, when you got big, you were to go to Louvain University in Belgium. And someday, you will be just as I am. And he patted my head. So I went home and I said to my mother, where is Louvain University? She said, in Belgium. It's one of the great universities of the world. And I said, Bishop Spalding told me I was to go there. The second year of my priesthood, after I had finished two years of university work in Washington, I was sent to Louvain. And I had never thought of Louvain in all these intervening years of my life until I stepped off the train in that university town in Belgium, and I said to myself, oh, this is where Bishop Spalding told me to go. But I never once thought about being a bishop. The only thought in my mind was that I was to be a priest. Now, you see, God even used the cracking of a cruet. He was speaking in events to tell me what was to be done. 
Now, an opposite side of this story is, in a country of Eastern Europe, an altar boy dropped a cruet. And the priest said, get out, and don't come back. He never came back. Do you know who it was? Tito. Tito. So here's a story of cruets determining the lives of two men, Tito and myself. And one man had the spirit of Christ in a prophetic sense, and the other lacked the charity of Christ. And so he lost a great soul. Now, oh my goodness gracious, I've been talking to you now too long, so we'll, we'll have to stop. But my good young people, you're much smarter than the young people of 20, 30, 40 years ago. May I ask of you one favor? Study is difficult. Some courses you like, others you do not like. You are young Catholic men and women. You have great responsibilities, greater than you know. One of the responsibilities is that you derive from your courses that which you are entitled to in virtue of your baptism, and that is that you be taught not only to know Christ, but that you be taught to make that knowledge of Christ practical so that you will apply the good things of your life in thanksgiving and the trials and the scallops of your life in acceptance for the perfection of your character. And if you are not getting it, you're cheated. Don't let anyone tell you that you do not want to hear about him and know him. You do. And if you were studying mathematics and never had any addition, I would say you're cheated. If you're in a religious school and you're not getting Christ, you're cheated. And demand it. You're not there not just for secular studies. You're there to prepare for a world that's going to be rather difficult. You're there to prepare a world where you have to be interested in other people. Not just to be interested in your own self. I got to be me. Who would want to be me for all eternity? None of us would the way we are. We want to be different. We want to be changed. We want to be better. We want to be happier. And as far as freedom is concerned, what is freedom? It's the knowledge of the truth. I'm free, for example, to draw a triangle if I give it three sides, not four. I'm free to draw a giraffe as long as I give it a long neck, not a short one. There's a nature in things that we have to obey. So our blessed Lord said, the truth will make you free. I'm not free when I say two and two make five. I'm free when I say the two and two make four. Freedom is not the right to do whatever you please. Certainly you can do whatever you please. You can turn a machine gun on your neighbor's chickens. You can fill your Aunt Agnes's mattress with old razor blades. 
Freedom means the right to do whatever you please. Freedom is a physical power. And when freedom becomes a physical power doing what you please, then we're going to have sheepdogs come against the errant sheep and drive us into the fold of dictatorship. That's what will happen to America. If we're only going to be individual egotists and have a nation that's made up of a crisscross of everybody doing his own thing. We live for others. We live for God. We live for Christ. And so train yourselves in a bit of discipline. About the only place the discipline is left today in the United States is at West Point, Annapolis, the Air Force Academy, and the professional football fields. Outside of that, discipline has disappeared. So discipline your own lives, but principally take any of the trials that you have in life and bring them to the good Lord and sanctify yourself with them. And if each and every one of us here, because we all have a scallop, if each and every one of us took the scallop that we have as a form of a cross and threw it up here in front of the altar, we would have a great pile of crosses. Then suppose I said to you, now, everybody come up and choose a cross. You know the one you'd look for? The one you put there. All right, if you would look for it, bear it in the name of Christ. And God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I want to thank you for joining me for another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, and I invite you to bring a friend next week. But I also would like to invite you to visit my website, bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find hundreds of hours of Bishop Sheen's videos, his audio recordings. Uh, So there is just a little bit for everyone. And if you enjoy watching Fulton Sheen, uh, there are, again, his Life is Worth Living broadcast and a number of the reflection he gave over the years. And so, again, that website is bishopsheentoday.com. My dear friends, until next time, may the Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.